All right, so for the rest of us, we're going to be in Romans this morning. If you'd like my notes, they're back there on that table next to the hand sanitizer. I think that's, I think I bought that hand sanitizer at the start of COVID, so I don't know how well it works now, but uh, if you like having notes, you don't have to. Um, there's no fill in the blanks or anything. It's just the same thing I'm looking at. Um, so... Last week, we started Romans, and I just did a big survey of the whole book, and now we're going back to the start, and we're going to do chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Um, normally, chapter 1 is kind of its own thing, and it gets talked about a lot. In fact, chapter 1 of Romans has been one of the most important pieces of writing in the history of the church. At every uh, generation, they have looked at this chapter to help them understand what in the world is happening in the world right now. Why is it so crazy? And listen, let me tell you, every generation thinks it's so bad Jesus is coming back any second. It cannot get worse than this. And let me tell you, it really can get worse, okay? Um, I'm not saying Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. That would be great, and I'm expecting it. I think we should live that way, okay? But when you, this chapter is like really interesting how every generation has looked at this and said, okay, this makes sense of the world. And understanding, being able to diagnose what's wrong with the world and what the fix is, is about half of your worldview. And your worldview is just the story you tell yourself without thinking about it. It's this unconscious story you tell yourself about the world, what the meaning of life is, and where you fit in it. It's how you respond to things without thinking. You just have a reaction to, th to news or to certain ideologies in the world or to whether you like it or dislike it, that feeling you get of like, oh, that's just wrong. I don't really know why it's wrong, but it's super wrong. Or I really love that. I don't know why I love it, but I love it. That's probably your worldview informing how you react, okay? And so ha the story we tell ourselves about the world is really important. And the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to tell you a story about the world. And it is a story that's supposed to inform how we understand things and why ultimately we need the gospel, why we need to be more specific, why we need the righteousness of God that Paul has already mentioned is the theme of Romans. So why do we need this? So he's going to start at the beginning. He's going to tell us a story from his kind of dot on the timeline of history, looking back, basically Genesis, the book of Genesis, all the way forward, what's happened and why is thing, have things gone wrong. And you're going to find it incredibly relevant to 2023. It's amazing how nothing really changes, right? So let me give you a warning up front. Um, chapter 1 opens a can of worms, and I aim to get into that can of worms. Okay, and I, I'm betting by the time we're done with the next three weeks, this week and the next two weeks, everyone will be offended at some point. Okay, it's just going to be everybody. Okay, and it's probably going to start this morning. I don't know where it's going to be, but I want to help you a little bit with what to do when you feel that response of, ah, I don't know about that. I don't like it. 
first question is, is this this just Ben's opinion or is this what the scripture says? Hopefully, if I'm doing my job right at every point, which I won't, but if I'm doing it right, then it will be just a matter of what does God, I'm reacting to what God says, not to what Ben says. If it's what I say, then feel free to toss it out. It's just me ranting. But hopefully, I'm telling you what the Bible says. So if it's what God says, how do you respond to that? Number one, if God never offends you, then probably, you probably aren't worshiping the true God. You're worshiping a God that you have fashioned after your own image. We all do it, okay? We all do it in one way or the other, but God, if God is being God, which he is, he is going to rub you the wrong way because you're not God. You see that? And if God never bothers you, if you're never like upset with something you find in the Bible and going, wait a minute, I don't like this, I don't understand this, why is he saying it that way? Couldn't he be nicer about it? Couldn't he say it a different way? Why does God have to have this opinion about this? I don't like it. If that never happens to you, you're missing something. You're just either breathing past things or you just are assuming that God is like you and he's not. I want to encourage you to learn to love being offended by God, to lean into it, to hope for it. God, would you offend me this morning when I open your word? Would you bother me? Would you irritate me? Because that's where we grow, right? That's where you learn to be more like Jesus. And so I'm hoping to give you plenty of opportunities to grow over the next couple of weeks. I have this quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. It's one of my favorites. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Isn't that great? (laughs) Look, if you want to be happy, just drink a bottle of port. Don't drink a bottle of port, but you get the point. Christianity was not designed to make you feel comfortable. And I think, maybe I'm wrong. I'm usually not about this sort of thing. I think all of us will be challenged at some point. So, there's a progression in Romans chapter 1. We'll read it in just a moment. There's a progression of humanity that has become more and more mired in its own sin. And God is not a passive bystander just watching things roll along. He's involved in it. It's a kind of judgment from God when he releases his restraint on humanity and allows us to have what we want. God is actually restraining us. It may not look like it. You may feel like things are completely out of control, but they're not. God is even now restraining sin in humanity and sheltering, to some degree, sheltering us from the consequences and the damage caused by sin in the world. And when God released Let's go of that restraint and let's go of that sheltering. That's a kind of judgment. When he says, sure, have what you want. If you've got kids, you know how this works. My children, all of them, repeatedly wanted to run out and play in the street. You're going to die. I don't care. I really want to play in the street, Dad. It's just I don't know what it is. But those trucks going down the highway just really make me want to stand in the lane and play. And what do you do? What's love in that situation is restraint, right? 
judgment would be saying, sure, go play in the street. And what Paul's going to say is that at some point, God said, sure, humanity, go ahead and play in the street. I will take my hands off, all right? And so I want you to see before you even read this that sin blooms and expands if it goes unchecked. It becomes a rot, a decay, in, and the society decays and rots from the inside, okay? And it may not look like the kind of judgment you see like in the book of Revelation where you have, you know, fire from heaven, but it's still a kind of judgment, and you'll see that, I think, played out here. Okay, so Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, we'll start there. It says, we'll start, I, I read part of this last week, you'll recognize it if you were here. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so from the beginning, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, bugs on the ground. Therefore, so following that, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so this is the first kind of progressive decay that we see in Paul's story. Remember, he's telling you a story. One thing happens and another thing happens and another thing happens. Just like we all tell ourselves a story about the world. So the first thing is it begins with simply forgetting to acknowledge God as a people. They did not honor him or thank him for who he is or what he has provided. I call it the basic sin of not looking up. You're going through your life, doing your thing, you know, harvesting crops, working your job, whatever it is that you do to sustain your life and to provide for yourself and your family and your friends. And you're working, you're putting your hand to the plow of your life. And you just feel like, and you think, because it's my hand on the plow, whether it's actually a plow or not, that it's I'm providing for myself. And you forget that it's God who makes it rain. It's God who gives you the ability to push the plow. It's God who provides the seed. It's God who provides all the things that you use to provide for yourself. It's not you. I mentioned last week, it's a great gift to be laid off at least once in your life because you learn my boss is not my provider, God is. Well, he said this, this decay began with simply not looking up and acknowledging that God is the creator. He's the one and he's the source. The result of that is three things. One, they became useless in their reasoning. That's futile in their thinking. Futile means useless, like chaotic, uh, disordered, pointless, like the way they began to think. This is in your, just how you think things through and how you understand things. Your th their thinking became disordered to the point of being useless. Number two, their inner self lacked the capacity to see or understand, to perceive. So that's scary. Think about it. Disordered, useless thinking leads to an inability to even understand. So now you're really lost. Even if you see the truth, 
you can't even understand it to be true or even understand what it means. You can, you are, your heart is completely unable to perceive. That's a scary place to be. And then number three, they claimed to be enlightened but instead became characterized by a total lack of insight. You ever met or encountered people like that? They think, they use a lot of words, they say a lot of things, they use big words, but they never actually say anything. And you're like, you're saying a lot of things, and you're very passionate and convinced that you're super wise and insightful, but I don't understand a word that's coming out of your mouth. And you start to think you're the crazy one, right? Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm just too dumb to understand this guy. And the truth is, no, his heart's been darkened, his thinking is useless, and he thinks himself wise when actually he has no insight whatsoever. This is all just the effects of not acknowledging God as his curator. That's it. That's what this begets in our culture. And then number two, we see another thing here. They embrace idolatry, which is defined very specifically here. They made a really stupid exchange. There's no other word for it. It's the dumbest exchange in all of history which is, and he sets up this obvious comparison, right? You have the majestic, eternal, glorious God, the creator of all things. We have him and all that glory available to us. We can bask in it all day long. And instead, humanity says, hmm, no thanks. I think I'll make some little things, some little things with my own hands and then pretend like I didn't make them. I'm going to make little things resembling animals and people and even the bugs on the ground, a little, little beetle on the ground, and I'm going to worship that instead. So it goes from just failing to acknowledge God to embracing this silly exchange of worshiping created things over God himself. Nowadays, we could call that materialism. I'm going to sit and bask in the glow of the LED lights on my TV screen, warmed in my heart by the images I see, and just bask in its glory instead of basking in his. This is the world we live in, right? So obvious to me. The result here is in verses 26 to 32. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then another step, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For example... Right? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I love that that's in the list. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Passion, that word passion there is like unrestrained desire. It's disordered desire. 
It's desire without a boundary, without limits. And so God gave them up. That's an interesting phrase. And that's the idea of kind of, there's some debate about it. One, one idea is he just took his hands off. The other idea is he, he gave it a little push and took his hands off. But either way, God says, go play in the street if that's what you want. And the result was every limitation, every boundary on their desire was gone. And it became disordered like a child who's never been disciplined. Just running all over the place and deeply unhappy. There's this wonderful study that I learned about when I was being trained as a teacher, which is another story. But they did, they've done this study, repeated it multiple times, where they take kids, small children, and they put them in a playground with a fence around it. And then they map where the kids play on the playground. <clears throat> and the kids spread out all over the whole playground right up to the fence and played all over happily. Then the next day, they, come, they take the fence out, same playground, same kids, no fence. And they put the kids out in the playground, and the kids clumped together and didn't play. They just sat there because there's no boundary. And this has been repeated over and over and over again. It's true of all ages. And this is what happens here. It's not a happy place that he's describing. But what the, the story that the world tells itself right now is that no restraint, no restriction, no hindrance of me being whatever I want to be, letting my desires run free, that's true freedom and happiness. And happiness can only be found if no one's holding me down and restricting me. And the story Paul is telling is that when God takes his hands off and gives no restrictions whatsoever, it's misery and destruction. Look at his list here. It's incredible. Every one of these things are things that destroy relationships. Covetousness, malice, greed, gossip, disobeying parents even, destroys your relationship with your parents. It's a disintegration of the glue that holds a society together is what ultimately happens when we remove all hindrance. They no longer resisted the sexual lust that dishonors one another. Specifically, women being consumed with lust for each other and men for men. And then God gave them up, it says, to a worthless mind that was willing to do things that all people until only recently agreed was shameless and across the line. Doesn't that sound like a description of the time we live in? Even people that are not Christians are going, hey, I don't know. This seems like a lot. It's an interesting time. The ultimate example he ends that section, that paragraph with, was that they not only do these evil things, but gave approval to one another for doing them. Evil became good, and good became evil. This reads, I think, like a detailed description of the time we live in right now. Even though Paul is not, he's not looking forward and prophesying that this is going to happen. He's just telling a story about why things are the way they are in his day. He's saying, go back to Genesis and follow the story of humanity forward to this moment, and this is the story. And it's amazing that we can look at this and go, it's still the story. <laughs> It's still where we live. We're seeing mass confusion about almost every social issue under the sun. Life, death, 
sexuality, gender, identity, mutual respect between people. There's a resurgence of fascism of all types, which is weird. Like, the left accuses the right of being fascist. The right accuses the left of being fascist. We're all just a bunch of fascists now. Everybody trying to go, well, if you're not going to buy into my ideology, let's see if I can get the government to do it for me, to force you. And everybody's trying it. It's a weird time. Many people have lost the ability to reason. They've become futile in their thinking. The result is that the ligaments of society begin to fail and everything becomes disjointed, fractured, and separated until it's just about how can I be me? But more, I just, the world needs more of me. The world, what the world needs is everybody just being me. And it's the me monster I've joked about for years. I think it came from Brian, the comedian Brian Regan, which is one of my favorites. But he talks about the me monster coming out. He said, me, right? It's just all about me and what I can, how I can be more of me. And when everyone's just being more of me, we get a disintegration. This isn't just ancient Israel or first century Rome. This is humanity. Self-actualization and individualism becomes the only ethic that we fight for. The only sin you can sin, put in air quotes, in the world is saying, I don't, you should deny yourself. Take up your cross and deny yourself. That's the only sin. And it's the worst sin that we could commit. So let's move on. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The tables turn. The shoe goes on the other foot. So if you've been sitting here feeling pretty, like, yeah, stick it to the world, Pastor. Just, Paul just set you up. I'm sorry, I'm just telling you now. Here's what he says. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. What? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We just That's chapter 1. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? This might seem like a sudden subject change as you're reading. We're just reading about the story of humanity and how it's all messed up and sin destroyed everything and everybody's broken. And then all of a sudden he's saying, talking about judging other people. But it's not. It's connected. Number one, there's a therefore at the beginning of the verse. And then also he says that phrase, you have no excuse again, which is the theme of this whole section. So I want to remind you of something I said to you last week, and this is why it's important. Is that he's talking to the church in Rome, and there's basically two groups of people in that church. There's Jews who have become Christians, following Christ, and then you have Gentiles, which is, you know, Romans, Greeks, and maybe some others mixed in, and they've become Christians, but they don't have a Jewish background. And so they're crammed together in this church, 
And there's competition. It was the problem in the whole first century of the church. How do we get these people to, to not feel superior to each other and to actually merge and have some unity? So as Paul is writing his section here on the sin of humanity, the Jews who thought, who thought that sexual immorality and idolatry was basically a Gentile problem, which is interesting because if you look at Jewish history, there's plenty of both. But when they wrote about these things, they would say Gentiles do these things. Gentiles do those things. They worship idols, and they have no limits to their sexual perversion, and we are not like them because we have the law, and we believe that's wrong, so we condemn it. We outright condemn that activity. We will not do that. And so when Paul is writing this letter, imagine it being read to this mixed group of people. One group thinks the other group is guilty of all these things and never acknowledges that they had the same problem. And as he's condemning the world and those who practice these things, the Jews in the room are turning up their noses and going, mm-hmm, I know a guy who needs to hear this sermon. I know a guy. Well, I'm going to email this out as soon as it is done. I got at least three people who were just a mess and need to hear how wrong they are. Don't raise your hands if you've ever done that or thought that. It's, it's terrible. Bill is not here to hear this. I wish he was here because he'd be really convicted right now. That's, I think that's what's happening. And Paul says, okay, I said all that. Now, now hold on a second. Those of you who think you're so righteous, actually God's wrath is increased for you because you have the law. You condemn these things with your mouth, but then you do them yourself in private and on the day of wrath it will be worse for you than for those who did not have the law and did such things yowza he's making the point that just because you possess the law does not mean you do not have to obey it in fact, having the law and not obeying it will receive a more harsh judgment from God than those that do not have it. Check this out, verse 13 and then 17 through 24. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the... There's a lot of sarcasm there, I think. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Are you not listening to your own lessons that you're teaching your children? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's the number one critique of the church from the world? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You condemn the world for things that you do yourself. And what he says right there is that they blaspheme God because of you. 
That stings, doesn't it? That's our reputation. So yes, not much has changed for the world or for the church in these 2,000 years. He then actually, he doubles down on it. I think it's probably the most offensive part. If you were an ethnic Jew at this time, this would have been the most offensive part of the letter where he says that a Gentile that keeps the precepts of the law, a Gentile, so a non-Jew who keeps what the law commands, even if he doesn't know the law and hasn't seen it or read it or been taught it, but just does what God says, he's more of a Jew. That's what he says. He's more of a Jew than you are who have the law but disobey it. That's hardcore. We Christians have a nasty habit of preaching chapter 1 with a lot of zeal without ever addressing chapter 2. In fact, most of the time they're separated. And it's quoted by zealous Christians and preachers against the world and then they just seem to not even know about chapter 2, which is all part of the same section. The closing words of chapter 2, I think, really should deeply disturb us as the church. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let God not say that about us, ever. Let it never be true. I can't control the rest of the world, but I can look at my own life, and I can ask God to root out the self-righteousness that I know is in me, and pray that it never bleeds over into how I talk about people who are lost, as if they are the enemy. This is what Satan is doing in our world. He's trying to pit the church against the world as though the, 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 the lost people of the world are the enemy, and they are not. They are the ones we're meant to rescue, not take shots at. So lacking the humility and grace to judge your own sin with the same zeal that you judge other sin offends God and destroys our witness to the world. You are not in less need for the righteousness of God than the sinner across the street. This is Paul's point. Is that everybody needs the righteousness of God, Jew and Gentile alike. Those who feel like they're in the in crowd with God and those who feel like they're on the outside of what God intends and who God loves. Every one of them despite appearances, equally need the righteousness of God. And when we forget that, we become self-righteous because we're going to get our righteousness from somewhere. We become self-righteous, self-justified, and the world is seeking self-actualization, which is not that far different from each other, and we're all competing about whose facade is more real. And all of it, and Paul's just going, stop it. You all need Jesus. Think of it this way. If you're in a terrible lumberyard accident, I think that's funny. I don't know what the terrible lumberyard accident would be, but a, you know, a giant pile of wood crashes on you, and you get a giant log, two-by-four, jammed in your eye. It's awful. It's a horror movie. There's blood splatter. You're dying you can't see, and your buddy who you went into the lumberyard with has a bunch of sawdust thrown in his eye, what should you do? Should you deal with the two-by-four in your face, or should you clumsily try to get the speck of dust out of his? 
This is the story Jesus told in Matthew 7. There are two of the stakes to avoid in this parable. One is it would be wrong to not help your friend. What Jesus is not saying, nor is Paul, saying don't, he's not saying don't tell the truth. He's not saying condone sin. What he's saying is deal with the log in your eye. Don't go at it with an obvious hypocrisy and point at your friend who has dust in his eyes and say, you need to get that out of there. That's really going to be a problem for you. I mean, look at all that dust, man. Go ahead and deal with that. And you've got this giant thing sticking out of your eye. And he's going, man, I think you've got a problem too. And we go, we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the dust in your eye. It would also be wrong to pretend like the timber in your own eye is not there. Both are mistakes. That's the point of Jesus, that Jesus is making. He's not saying, because the world wants to say, don't judge me. My favorite is Miley Cyrus, the great prophet Miley Cyrus, who said, only God can judge us. Her way of saying, y'all, you, you, you people can't judge the way I'm acting, only God can judge us. Well, okay, you're saying those words, but I don't think you know what those words mean, right? Do you really want God to judge you? It's crazy. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying don't judge, don't tell the truth. What he's saying is don't do it self-righteously. As though you don't need the righteousness of God as much as they do. That's what he's saying. We, need, we do not need to defend the truth. We don't. The truth is the truth and stands on its own. It will always be the truth. You do not need to fight for the truth, but you do need to tell the truth. We need to tell the truth for the sake of those that hear it, that they might believe it. Think of a drowning man, and you're on a boat. And he's drowning, and he doesn't know how to swim, and he's lost at sea, and you're standing on a boat. Which is more helpful? To instruct him from the safety of the boat about how he should swim. Look, man, just paddle your arms and kick your feet. You'll be fine. Come on, like, just swim. He's like, I don't know how to swim. I'm drowning. I'm freaking out. Look, your, your form is not very good. You should... You should maybe cup your hands. I'm not a very good swimmer, so I can't really give people instruction on how to swim. But you get the point. Which is better, to do that or to jump in and, and show him and rescue him out of, from drowning and bring him into the boat with you? The content of both things are the same, teaching someone to swim. You're still telling the truth, but the attitude is different, isn't it? One is, I will not enter into your world with you. I will not get wet. I will stand here and give you instruction, and then I can say, I tried to help him. But it was pearl before swine. It was no help when you were unwilling to get wet to save him. Jesus often rebuked people and told the truth, but he managed to do it in a way that came alongside them. Imagine if Jesus had stayed in the boat and not come down from heaven, taken on flesh, walked the earth, suffered, and died for your sake. Imagine if he had stayed uninvolved and took a stand for truth from heaven and said, it's pearl before swine, I'm not going. The heart between those two things is very different. You may say the same words, you may do the same things and believe the same things, but the heart's very different. 
I am bothered by much of what I see talked about and how it's talked about around this topic. Because it comes from kind of ivory pulpits, as they say, throwing stones from a glass house. Jesus didn't stay at a distance, and neither should we. So I'm going to be preaching on gender next week and sexuality the following week. <laughs> I told you you're all going to be bothered. <laughs> and this is the, the approach I'm taking, which is we will t I will tell the truth, make no mistake. But what I aim to do is not do it as one standing on the dock instructing drowning people and telling them to swim better. I'm going to encourage us to get in the water, get in the, the, the dirty, murky water with people and say, let's swim together because the gospel's good news. And if it's not being heard as good news, then I think there's a problem because it really is great news. But it does start with diagnosing the problem and talking about what story are you telling yourself about you and the world and your place in it and what's wrong with the world. So the trouble is that our conscience becomes trained to react to other people's sin more strongly than our own. I hate that about myself. Other people's sin is so icky to me. My own sin just seems less... It's like this person in my life that I don't like but I tolerate. So a man that is sexually attracted to another man offends your conscience deeply, but your daily porn habit does not. And that's a problem. This is why the gospel is equally good news for everyone, for us in this room, who feel like we're on the inside of what God... And you are, by the way, if you're a Christian, you're on the inside. You're a holy one. You're a saint before God but you still need the righteousness of God just as much as anyone else does. We all do. So this is what I, I would like us to pray, um, that we would see that the good news is for us just as much as everyone else, and that gratitude would saturate our hearts. I think this is the way we approach the world, is I am deeply grateful for what he's done for me. He not only died for me and wiped my sin away, but he holds me every second of every breath of every single day, he holds me in him. I am secure in him because he holds me, and I am desperate for him. And so we go to the world with that, not with this self-righteousness that Paul is calling out. And we tell a different story to the world, an alternate explanation for what's wrong with the world and how, what their place is in it, because it's good news. Amen? So why don't we stand... I want to pray, then we'll close with some worship. Holy Spirit, I ask you to, first of all, would you bring conviction to us where it needs to be? Would you root out the self-justifying, self-righteousness that Paul addresses in chapter 2? Make us people who are 
telling a different story about humanity that aren't just harping on chapter one and not telling the rest of the story, which is that where there was no way, Jesus made a way. And that he is not just wiping the slate clean and letting you get a fresh start, but he is transforming us into his image. He is making us like Christ. We are new creations in him. And that's great news. And yes, we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves, but that leads to good things. God, I pray that you would put a smile on our face, even as we are convicted about our self-righteousness, that we would remember that we are not justified by our own works, we're justified by him. We are made righteous by him, not by ourselves, and that's great news for us. God, make us experts. Make us expert witnesses in the world. That we would, that our hearts would break for the drowning people around us. And that we would not stay distant. That we would not stand on the boat saying, ah, what a shame. Another one drowned. God, push us out into the water. That we would be willing and courageous enough to get out in people's lives and represent you well. God, I pray over the next couple of weeks that you would really drive this home to us. That we would be expert witnesses in the world. Empower this church to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.